as I was writing the message for this morning on Monday, that song kept going through my head, and I mentioned it to Harold, and he goes, well, I think we can figure out how to include that in the service, and I said, that'd be good. Well, up to this point, we have been working through the book of Habakkuk. Let me share with you, some of you think Habakkuk's very obscure. Last Sunday morning, we attended church with our daughter uh, in Waco, and they just finished a series on Ecclesiastes. You talk about depressing. Amen. I signed an amen on that one. But uh, what an incredible story that was. And this is really, the more I've studied Habakkuk, the more I am struck by the similarities between their day and our day, which is one of the reasons it ended up in the schedule this morning uh, when I was preparing for this year. But we've looked at how Habakkuk struggled with the wickedness of the world. He looked around the world and said, it's a mess. There's evil everywhere. The Chaldeans are coming to get us. This isn't good. The world seemed to be going in the wrong direction. Sound familiar? The world seems to be going in the wrong direction. But God's going to use his, his will to accomplish his purpose. And ultimately, Habakkuk's story is about the overcomer. Because he says, these people are going to come. They're going to destroy. They're going to bring judgment from God. But God's at work in the midst of it. And the five woes he gave to the Chaldeans, he told them, y'all aren't going to last. You may win for a season, but it, wickedness never lasts. And then we looked at the question of how do we respond when bad things happen in life. And the prophet realized, like, like many of us, that sometimes we, we see evil and wickedness come into our lives and bad things happen and we get angry or we become bitter or we become selfish. But he said, no, we're going to do something different. We're going to praise God. And what he did is he sets up, we set up two weeks ago what we're going to look at today, which is this weird song. Um, Ultimately, it's what's called a theophany. Uh, That's not a word you probably use very often. Uh, But a theophany is simply a moment when God breaks into our reality with the purpose of showing us something, revealing himself to us to guide us in some direction. And what God does in these passages is he reveals himself to the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk writes this song, this psalm. Um, And they set it to a tune, and we don't have the tune any longer, but it would have been something very erratic, something very strange, something very mournful, because this is not a a song of of joy per se, because there's a lot of things going to happen before God brings them victory in the end. But he's at work in this situation. And what he reveals to the people of Israel, I think to us as well, is his goodness. So I want you to see six things from the the song before we try to bring it into application for us in our lives today. The first thing I want you to notice is that God speaks into our darkness. Look at verses 3 and 4. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Silah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Now, as the song opens, what he begins with is a reference to two places that are probably very obscure to most of us. We go, where's Teman or Teman? Where is Mount Paran? We kind of go, where? We don't understand that because we don't really know the Old Testament history like they did because it was their history. These are places where God spoke to his people. He spoke into the lives of his people in the early days as they were becoming a nation. 
He says, I've got something for you. I'm bringing you out, and I'm going to take you somewhere, and you're going to be something. And remember, they had spent many years, they had been called by God many years before by when Abram heard the call. And they spent time in, in the promised land, and then finally they ended up down in Egypt. Y'all know that story, so we're not going to go into the details. But they ended up spending about 400 years in captivity, and then God brought them out. And when he got them to this place, T-Man, and Paran, Paran's another name for Mount Sinai, they meet with God and they're moving from bondage to freedom. They're coming out of darkness to light. They're moving in the right direction. And if you remember the story in the Old Testament, Moses was up on the top of the mountain. You remember that story? And the people were down at the bottom. And at the top, there's lightning and flashes and clouds and smoke and all this stuff going on. This is a reference to what we have right here. The mountain was covered The lights were flashing, the lightning was flashing, the presence of God appeared. Here he was a chosen people that they didn't fully understood what God was doing just yet, but in their darkness, God had come for them. Wow. He'd come to bring to them a people unto himself. He'd chosen them. He initiated a relationship. He says, you're mine. And then he reminds them in verse 5 that God is the one who delivers from bondage. Look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. Now, this is a very short reference to a very big event. And you're probably very familiar with it when I bring it to your attention. The prophet spoke of the miraculous work of God in bringing his people out of bondage. Do you remember what happened when, when they were down there? They were in, the, in bondage and, and uh, uh, God's man came down to bring them and lead them out. And he brought with him, because of the hardness of heart of the Pharaoh, a series of ten plagues. Y'all remember those? And again and again, and this is the reference, plus pestilence, plague. He's working through that to bring his people out. Make no mistake, God's the one who brought these plagues. God's the one who brought these progressively worse activities to the nation of Egypt so that he could be delivering his people. And he says, this is the length at which I go to deliver you. What he's trying to help the people in Habakkuk's day is understand is God has been working with us, working for us. He said, I'm not going to leave my people in the situation there. I'm not going to leave you in the situation you're in now. I'm going to move. Because when God delivers, what? It's always right, and it's also right on time. God left them for 400 years, and then he brought them out. The Egyptians had not listened to the man of God who said God's going to bring judgment. So they were placed at God's heels. They were subjected to him. How arrogant for us as a person to think we can stand against the plan of God. And yet many do. When God calls a person, a people, a nation, or even a church for deliverance, the proper answer is to what? Say, yes, God, we'll listen, we'll follow, we'll obey. But the people of God watched as God sent plague after plague after plague and until he finally delivered his people out of Egypt and brought them toward the promised land. His heart was for people to know him. See, God delivers from bondage. Third, God provides a place for us. New verse 6 and 7. He stood, God stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now, after the people of God have been delivered from the promised land, what we get is another poetic picture of God standing and 
looking and measuring and shaking the nations. What in the world is he talking about here? I believe what he's talking about is simply this. He looked at the promised land. He says, I'm going to lay it out for you. I'm going to draw it out for you. This is your plan. This is your place. This is where you're going to be. If you remember the book of Joshua, the whole book is about the people of God possessing the land. You begin in the beginning, they're coming across into the promised land, and by the time you get to the end, they've pretty much conquered the land. And through that process, what they have found is that God is what? Provided a place for them. Isn't that a beautiful promise? That when God not only delivers you, he has a place for you. He brings us to those places. His heart for his people was that they could enjoy the peace of God. Now, they've settled for peace and security instead of the peace of God. But God's plan was also and always for them to be much more than they were, to live in a place where they found harmony. His heart for them was to be blessed with a place of joy so they could then bless the world. In the process, strongholds were defeated. The everlasting peace was released. He was at work. And even the neighbors saw what was going on. Did you see that? The tents of Kushan, the curtains of Midian. Those are the na- nations around that, that weren't going to be displaced because God was moving, but they would see that God was at work. They would see what was going on next door and go, man, their God is the real God. He's at work. So he spoke into their darkness. He delivers them from bondage. He provides a place for us. Number four, he removes great barriers. Look at verses 8 to 10. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Now he brings to mind the moment when God removed the great barrier from in front of them. You're thinking, ah, the Red Sea. You'd be close. It's not. That was part of his deliverance. You remember after they finally got to the border of the promised land, and they were standing on the east side of what is today called the Jericho River, the Jordan River, excuse me, at Jericho. And it was springtime, and the waters were raging. There was floods running, and the water was rapidly coming down from the north. And they're going, how are we going to cross? In that moment, God told them to step into the water. And what happened? The water stopped. And you're thinking, oh, that didn't really happen. I'm going to tell you I'm simplistic enough to believe 100% that's exactly what happened. God opened the door. He removed the barrier from the front of the people so that they could be where they needed to be. God can and he does remove barriers from our lives. We just have to wait on him to do it. People of God had seen God move in so many miraculous ways that part of the water was just another example of it. You see, our God's able to stop the waters. Our God's able to make the way straight. Our God is able to open prison doors. Our God is able to part the sea. Our God is able to turn the water into wine. And our God is able to move in ways that we could never even begin to explain. He'll remove the barriers in his time when we walk by faith. Number five. He defends his people. Look at verse 11. Remember, Habakkuk is writing this song poetically, and he's using imagery to evoke memories that they, as a nation, would have had common in their minds. 
He says, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You're going, wow, what's he talking about? This is a very particular and specific moment to which he's referring here. It's a moment in the time of Joshua when, when Joshua and, and the people were at, in war and they were battling against uh, the Amorites. It's, it's referenced in Joshua 10 if you want to read it later. But, but he's, it, there's a moment where they're, 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 they're battling and things are going pretty well, but the sun is beginning to fade in the day. And if the sun goes down, the enemy is going to be able to slip away in the night and, and disappear and come back and fight another day. And this is what happened. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day, when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, here's Joshua's prayer, son, and he's not talking about his kid, he's talking about the sun in the sky, son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. God had opened a door for them to win. Because he was defending his people. And it went so far as to stop the sun from moving, the moon from crossing the sky. Some of you are thinking that could never happen. What's impossible with man is definitely possible with God. And God gave them the time they needed to complete the battle and to win. He's at work with them. But ultimately what God did for his people was here in verses 12 to 15. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation. Now catch this, verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked of the, the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Again, poetic language. The last section of his song is a promise of victory. God brings victory to his people. And you're thinking to yourself, if we've understood you correctly, Pastor, we've been working through the book of Habakkuk, and they're about to lose their nation. They're about to lose their temple. They're about to lose their city. The walls are going to be pulled down. People are going to be killed. There are going to be people carried into captivity. And you're saying that's victory. Absolutely. Because God was at work in it. What he's doing through that process is the ultimate victory. You're going, that doesn't sound like victory to me, but it is. Because what he's promising is this, he is going out for our salvation. What God is doing is putting in place the people who are going to bring about a nation, a gathering of people who in the end, God is able to bring his Messiah into reality so that he could die on a cross for your sin and mine and bring us life. Habakkuk says a very, a very obscure book. I've helped Eric Aiken find it this week. But I want you to know that even though it's obscure, God's at work here, and he has been moving, bringing it about. Three things I want you to see, and I'll wrap it up. Number one, have you ever heard this phrase in church? God has a plan for you. 
God has a plan for you. I was recently recently reading an article about this, and I hear this phrase a lot. And I think what's what's happened is we have allowed this phrase to become um, very specific and very simplistic almost. We, we, we take it to mean this. God has some spiritual activity that you need to do. Okay? So when someone says, well, God has a plan for you, what they mean by that is he has a place for you to serve. Maybe it's to serve as a Sunday school teacher, or maybe it's to serve as... Uh, 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 somebody in the choir or somebody in a, on a committee somewhere or something like that, and that's your spiritual service. I, I, but I'm convinced that, that God has more for us than, than simply that. You, you will definitely have a place to serve in the kingdom of God. If God, if God makes a place for you with your gifts, he'll open a door for you if you'll be watching for it. it it's there. You say, well, I haven't found it. Start looking. It's there. But I suspect God's plan for us is much broader than we realize. It's not just, well, I'm going to be a pastor. Let me tell you what. If I define my spiritual walk by what I do as your pastor, I have a very small definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what happens when that position or role goes away? Nothing's left. We cannot define ourselves by what we do in the kingdom. You with me? You say, well, I'm a deacon. What happens when you retire from being a deacon? Well, I'm nobody. No, you're not, because that's not your definition. That's not God's definition of who you are. Over in the writings of the prophet of Micah, maybe we'll go to Micah next year. I haven't got there yet. But he spoke about the very thing, this very thing to a people struggling with their faithfulness. You know, this, this, issue, this issue of being faithful to God is a common theme in the, in the scriptures. It goes again and again and again. But Micah had this issue. They were talking with him about it. He was talking to them about it. He said to the same people, by the way, to whom Habakkuk wrote, he said this, Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? You ready? Here's God's plan. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's a whole different definition than serving as some ministry leader, isn't it? I'm going to tell you what, that's a much more inclusive definition. Here I believe we see a call from God to be more than a person who fills a role or a place of service. It's a person that we have to be. I'm convinced that who we are is way more important than what we do. How we live is more important than the areas in which we serve. I think it's just as simple as this, act justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly, prudently before God. To let his presence fill not just the moments when we are in the role, not the moments when we're at the church or with God's people, but every single moment of our day. That when we walk into a place where we think we won't see anybody we know, and the Roydales walk in. On our way to Waco last week, we were at Bucky's. And, you know, you think, Roy City, nobody's going to see anybody you know. And I'm standing there by the coffee area and in walk, as Abigail described them, the Roydales. I guess she thought that was their last name. I don't know. And I jokingly said, man, we're trying to get away from church people, and here you are following us, you know. 
But see, you never know when you're going to cross somebody who knows who you are. And listen, even more than that, you may encounter people who don't know who you are, but figure out that you're something in the kingdom of God. You know Christ, and the way you're living is not what it needs to be. Act justly, love mercy, walk modestly with God. To be not just with us in the spiritual moments, but with us at the job, with the family, as we do life, that we make the right choices. God has a plan for you to live justly, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Number two, God wants victory for you. You know that? Now, I don't want to sound like a televangelist this morning, but I'm going to tell you, God wants you to have victory in life. He doesn't want you to live a life of defeat. He doesn't want you to live a life of, of brokenness and, and, and torn up. God created you and me for fellowship and worship. He made us so we could walk with him. You know, poor choices of humanity caused us to have broken fellowship with God. It leaves us covered with what? A stain of sin. But what was designed to be an amazing relationship has been damaged by sin. But listen, we are supposed to have victory. But it became defeat. We're supposed to live with the good, but it came what? Ugly. There is hope on the horizon because God has promised to the people of their day, to the people of our day, that the outcome of this season of life is going to be the coming of Messiah. Let me tell you what, they didn't know what was coming, and they didn't live to see it, but God promised that Messiah was coming after their captivity. And I want to tell you something. You may not live to see it, but Messiah is coming again. He has not left us. He wants us to live in victory. He wants us to live in victory right now, right here. Death is going to be defeated. Sin's going to be conquered. Life is going to be real. That's why Paul told the church at Corinth, at Corinth this, but thanks be to God who what? Gives us the victory through Jesus, our Lord. The end of it all is an amazing victory to come. And that's a promise for you. One more thought. And it's this. God has opened the door for you. You see, if you're here today and you have a relationship with, with Messiah Jesus, you think, okay, I've checked the box off. I got saved. I got baptized. I'm done. No, he's got doors that are going to open for you. He's got things for you to do. He's got a person for you to be in the world around. He's got something for you moving forward. What you need to do is discover what it is. Go figure it out and then go do it. The scriptures tell us that if a man's gifts will open a door for service. I believe with all my heart that if you're a child of God, you have at least one spiritual gift. And that door will be open for you to exercise that gift somewhere. It may be something as simple as exhortation, encouraging each other. We talked about that last Wednesday night in our Bible study. Exhortation, coming alongside and saying, man, I want to encourage you. Maybe it's a gift of prophetic word. You speak to somebody and say, hey, God has been seeking. I've been, he revealed to me that you've got this. You've got a place of this. You don't know what God has for you, but he, if a child of God you are, he has a door, and he has opened it for you. And then there's some of you here today that you haven't opened the door to salvation yet. That's the place to start. Maybe you're listening online and you haven't found Christ. You haven't met him. Revelation 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What he's saying there is that God wants to come into your life. Jesus wants to come into your life and have fellowship with you and walk with you and have dinner with you and, and live with you day in, day out. The God of the universe has made the way for you and me to escape the negative destruction, worthless existence we have without God. He sent his son to die on the cross, to be raised the third day, and then ascend to the Father, interceding for you. You know, if you're here today and you don't know him, today's the day to do it. If you're here today and you go, I know him, but I've been resisting him and pushing him off because I'm going to do my own thing, maybe today's the day you say, I want to surrender to him and let him lead. Maybe he's speaking in some other way to you. Would you say yes to Jesus? Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house today, to gather for worship, to sing praises to your name, to observe the ordinance of baptism, to just be blessed by being together with brothers and sisters. And Father, I pray right now as we go into this time of, of invitation, maybe there's someone who needs to come and pray at an altar. Maybe there's someone who needs to come and have someone pray for them. Lord, what a, an honor that would be for me to help them. But God, we want you to be free in these moments. We want you to be in the midst of it. In Jesus' name.